Good morning. I'm excited about this. I don't know about y'all. I know from uh, comments I've gotten from several of you that uh, that you're looking forward to the study of, this, of the covenants as much as I am. But some of you are no doubt thinking, hmm, the covenants, that sounds really exciting. <laughs> what could the covenants in the Bible have to do with uh, with my life, with real life? Well, if that's where you are at this point, then I am more than eager to watch your understanding be transformed by the Word of God. I am 100% convinced that this is one of the most valuable studies that you can do because it is one of the most valuable valuable studies that, that I've been blessed to do. And I'm actually very optimistic that if you stay with us through this study, you're going to come to that same conclusion. The greatest joy in the Christian life comes when we abandon our program and we get with God's program. And the covenants give us a greater insight into what his program is than just about anything else that we can examine in his word. We tend to live as if our biggest problem is that somehow God doesn't quite understand us and our needs, right? Isn't that how we live? But the reality is that our biggest problem is we don't understand God. We need more of his mind. He doesn't need more of our mind. He's already heard plenty about our mind. Do you want your activity in this life to focus on the things that are critically important to the mind of God or the things that are important to you that he doesn't particularly care all that much about? Do you want your prayers to focus on things that are peripheral to his agenda or that are central to his agenda? It makes a big difference in your prayer life. A great deal of our anxiety about our own lives comes from a lack of familiarity with the big picture of what God is about. About his agenda for us and for his creation. And the purpose of this series is that we might get a lot more familiar with those things. The covenants also provide a wonderful view into the unity of Scripture. They are threads that are woven throughout Scripture from beginning to end that tie it all together. And they help us to understand that the entire Bible speaks with one voice about one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. When we get to our study of the book of Romans, for instance, after this series, we'll see that Paul makes reference to all four of the covenants we're going to be examining as he shows us how Christ has brought the righteousness of God to man in perfect fulfillment of those covenants. Now, there are four major covenants. There are other covenants in the Old Testament, but there are four biggies, and these are the ones that we're going to be focusing our attention on in this series. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, also known as the Law of Moses, the Davidic covenant, and finally the New Covenant. Now, I'm going to invoke the uh, Deffenbaugh rule, and I'll say that this series will take at least five to six weeks and not more than a year. (laughs) 
Now, all of the biblical covenants that we're going to examine are between two parties, God and men. Uh, I, I, as I was studying, I got into all this stuff that I've seen way back since seminary about suzerainty vassal treaties and all these different treaty forms that, that you know, might have had some impact on Israel's perception about all this. And then I got in a conversation with Patrick Emmert, and he said, you know, if someone died and put me in their will, I don't care anything about the history of wills. I care about what's in that one. And I love that statement. So we're going to focus on what the Bible has to say about this stuff, not what everybody else has to say. Now, there are two types of covenants that we find in Scripture, bilateral and unilateral. Bilateral simply means two-sided, two-directional. Unilateral means one-sided or one-directional. In the simplest terms, a bilateral covenant depends on action by both parties in order for the covenant conditions to be fulfilled. When a, a, with the unilateral covenant, on the other hand, the fulfillment of the covenant conditions, or actually promises, depend only on the action of one party, the one who initiated the covenant. That means that a bilateral covenant is essentially conditional in nature, and a unilateral covenant is essentially unconditional in nature. Now, I say essentially... Because there, as we'll see, there are conditional elements even within the unilateral covenants. But the fulfillment of the, of the covenant promises does not depend on anyone except the covenant maker, and that's God. And we're going to see that played out some this morning and a whole lot as we proceed through this series. Three of the four covenants that we'll be discussing are unilateral. Uh, and one is bilateral, and that will become very evident as we proceed. The three great unilateral covenants are fundamentally promises that God has made to his people. And they, their fulfillment depends only on the trustworthiness of our God to do that which he has said he will do. The marker to look for in a unilateral covenant is the repetition of the of the. Very simple two-word phrase, I will. And that gives us a good segue into the Abrahamic covenant. If you look at uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that our brother Bill just read, you'll see, and I've got it up on the screen, you'll see six times in four verses, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7, the phrase, I will, the, the uh that little, that little two-word statement. Now, in that exact same passage, let's look at the specific promises. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I hope you all can kind of see the red highlighting in these slides. If not, I'll let me know because there are other ways to highlight. I can do bright yellow and, you know, over the top. All right. This is God's initial declaration to Abram. And by the way, if I, if I bounce between saying Abram and Abraham, please forgive me, I, his name gets changed from Abram to Abraham in chapter 17, and I have a terrible time always getting in, within a passage, getting the right name uh, in the right place. So it's the same guy, okay? <laughs> the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. 
And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, there are three promises in that very simple text. There are three core promises, and they are land, seed, and blessing. First, the land. God says to Abraham, and this passage that I've got up is chapter 17, where he expands on the land promise a bit. He says, I will give you, Abraham, and to your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. So you've got the land promise. Then you've got the seed promise. God tells Abram that he's going to give him and his descendants after him, or excuse me, he's going to give him and his descendants after him the land, but when he uses that term descendants, that word is seed in the Hebrew, and he says, your seed, in chapter 15, will become like the stars of the heavens in number. Later he says, like the dust of the earth. Uh, So countless descendants, that's the second promise. And then finally, the blessing. And the blessing is in three parts. First, God says he will bless Abram. Genesis 12, verse 2. Then he says in in verse 3, two things. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And then he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All right, those are the three core blessings, land or core promises, land, seed, and blessing. All of these three promises occur over and over and over in Scripture from cover to cover, all the way to the book of Revelation. So it's very important that we understand as much as we can about them so we'll know how to kind of keep track of what's going on in the Scriptures. Now, to whom do these covenants apply? Uh, To these covenant promises in the Abrahamic covenant apply? Well, we might expect that, that when God told Abram that he was making these promises to him and to all his descendants, that that mean, means uh, every child whom he would bear would be an heir to the covenant promises. But that is not the case. In the first two generations after Abram, God explicitly narrows the continuation of the covenant. He focuses it on one child, one son in each generation. And he explicitly excludes those who are not the chosen heirs to the covenant. He makes a very deliberate distinction between the two, and we even see him physically, geographically separating the non-chosen seed from the chosen seed. There are three passages in which God makes the seed promise to Abram. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Um, we're going to see these passages as we work through, so I'm not going to lay them all out right at this point. First, he makes the promises to Abram, and then he extends the same promises to Isaac and to his descendants. Uh, but he explicitly does not extend the promises to Ishmael, Isaac's older half-brother, who was actually Abram's firstborn. Ishmael was born to Abram by Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And by the way, it was Sarah who orchestrated that whole deal, right? Sarah had uh, become old and she had, she had been barren all her life. She had been unable to conceive a child. So she arranged, she, she hooked Abram up with 
her handmaiden Hagar, and she arranged to have for him to have a child through the handmaiden because she wanted by some means to ensure that she and Abram would have an heir. But God told Abram in Abraham in chapter 17, after he gave him his name Abraham, that even though he would bless Ishmael, Ishmael would not be the one to whom he extended the covenant promises. He told Abraham that he would give him a son through Sarah, even though Sarah was at that point about 90 years old. After protesting to God that such a thing would be impossible, Abram pleaded with God, saying, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He didn't want to see Ishmael set aside from God's blessing. Well, God said to him in chapter 17, Well, he said, No, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you will call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and for his descendants after him. And he says it again a little later in verse 21 of chapter 17, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, not with Ishmael. Now in chapter 26, after Isaac had grown up, he was born, he grew up, and Abraham had passed away, God restates these three same covenant promises to Isaac in chapter 26. And if you just look at the highlighting up there, you'll spot the land, the descendants or seed, and the blessing. Now, God doesn't, in this passage, spell out all three components of the blessing. He focuses on the blessing uh, through to Isaac and through Isaac to the, to the whole world. All right, so he's, he's saying the same thing to Isaac that he said to Abram. Now, you'll notice verse 5, the last verse, looks very conditional. It sounds as if God is honoring his promise and extending the covenant to Isaac only because Abram obeyed his commandments. But when God declared these same promises to Abram, he did so without condition. And he's not making the extension of the promises to Isaac conditional. I believe the point in verse 5 is simply that God is praising Abraham for his obedience and he is calling Isaac to the same obedience. And we're going to see in just a bit how God created that obedience in Abraham. Okay? So, the promises went to Abraham, they were extended to Isaac, and then they were also explicitly extended to Jacob, Isaac's son. But they were not extended to Jacob's slightly older twin brother, Esau. Okay? In Genesis 28... In the passage about the, it's, it's called the, uh, the passage about Jacob's ladder, where Jacob sees the angel of Yahweh standing above this ladder, which is a gateway between earth and heaven. We find out later from Jesus that he's the gateway, he's the ladder. But in that passage, God states the same three promises to Jacob, land, seed, and blessing. All right, so based on the information we have just from the first three guys in this chain, three patriarchs, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are given and extended to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, how long is this covenant in effect? Well, God is very forceful in, in uh, declaring that. In Genesis 17, 7, and 8, he says, I will establish my covenant 
speaking to Abraham, between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In Psalm 105, verses 8 through 10, the psalmist says, He, God, has remembered His covenant forever. The word which He commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac, then He confirmed it to Jacob for a statute. To Israel, that's another name for Jacob, as an everlasting covenant. Okay, so you have a lot of clues there. How long is the covenant valid? There you go. You guys are sharp. All right, the covenant ratification. Now, a unilateral covenant doesn't necessarily require ratification ceremony. A formal ceremony is normally required with the bilateral covenant because the two parties get together and they do something formal and official to confirm to each other that they're serious about this and they're going to keep each keep his own stipulations. But in a unilateral covenant, that's not normally required because it's a promise by one party to another. But in this passage, in Genesis chapter 15, God condescends to Abraham's request for confirmation of the covenant promises. Earlier in that chapter, God promised Abram that he would give him a son from himself. It wouldn't be Eliezer, his servant. It would be through him. And God believed that promise. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says, uh, Abraham believed that promise. And in 15, 6, it says, God reckoned his faith as righteousness. We'll see later in Romans that Paul picks up on that and makes a big deal about that. It is a big deal. That's the faith of Abraham. But in this passage, God states to Abram that he's going to give him a son. And then he says, I'm going to give you the land. And Abram responds in verse 8 and says, Lord God, how may, may I know that I will possess this land that you're promising? So Abram's asking for confirmation. So God gives it to him. God tells him, okay, go gather up some animals, cut them in half, put the two, separate the two halves, and then... After Abram does that, God puts Abram into a deep sleep and appears in a vision. And in that vision, Abram sees a smoking oven and a flaming torch pass between the pieces of the animals. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you go to Jeremiah 34, you see a similar incident in which the officials of Judah vowed loyalty and obedience to God, and then they confirmed their oath by cutting animals in half, and they, the officials of Judah, passed between the halves of the animals to confirm that they, they were vowing and intending to do what they had said. So the passing between the animals is simply a ratification. It's a way of confirming an oath. In the case of Jeremiah 34... The officials of Judah made the promise, ratified the promise, and then broke the promise. In the case of Genesis 15, it is the glory of God that passes between the halves of the animals. And what's Abram doing at the time? He's asleep. He's in a, he's in a deep sleep, God-induced, and he is witnessing the glory of God passing between the halves of the animals. 
Why is that important? Well, it's important because it it declares rather forcefully that God is the one holding himself to this covenant. Okay? He is the one who is making the promise, and he's the one holding himself to the covenant. It's a very graphic statement by God. All right, the covenant sign. For each of the biblical covenants, with the exception of the covenant with David, God explicitly identifies a covenant sign. And the sign is a physical memorial of the covenant, a tangible reminder to his people that the covenant is in effect. For the Abrahamic covenant, the sign is circumcision. Every male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. So the males in Israel literally bore the sign of the covenant on their own bodies as a constant reminder of the promises that God had made to Abraham. Now note that there is definitely a conditional element to the covenant sign. Any descendant of Abraham who did not get circumcised and a male child would be cut off from his people and would not get to experience the blessings of the covenant for himself. But the covenant promises would remain intact. They would not be revoked. The promises of land, seed, and blessing to Abraham and to his descendants would continue. Okay, if you're one of those people who wants to be spared all that background information and just wants to get to the so what, then stay with me, because here's where it gets really interesting and really relevant. Let's take a look at what happened to Abraham after he received these covenant promises. Uh, and we're gonna, there's a whole lot we could look at. We could look at Abraham, we could look at Isaac, at Jacob, and there are a lot of stories that God lays out, real life stories that he lays out, and they all kind of point in the same direction. But I'm gonna single out four stories that have to do with God's dealings with Abraham. And we'll start with Abraham and Pharaoh in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. It's here that we begin to see the outworking of God's character and promises in ways that create faith and obedience in his people. In Genesis 12, right after declaring the covenant promises to Abraham, we find that Abraham and Sar- Abram and Sarai, before they get their name changed, they leave the land of Canaan because of a famine. And they go over to Egypt. Okay? And when they go to Egypt, we find that, well, that Sarai must have been drop dead gorgeous. And she must have aged exceedingly well because about, at this point she's about 65 years old. And Abram is so worried that some Egyptian is going to kill him to get to her that he lies about who she is. And he says, she's my sister. So that, uh, he, that, they won't kill him to take her as a wife. Well, it turned out that Abram was correct in assuming that some Egyptian would want to take the very fetching Sarai as a wife. And that someone turned out to be Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Oops. And while Abram lied and deceived Pharaoh, he deceived the people of Egypt, Pharaoh actually acted honorably in this whole deal giving Abram a very hefty bride price that included sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. I mean, who wouldn't give up his wife for that much livestock? 
Just kidding, honey. But because God had already determined to provide the covenant seed through Sarai, there was no chance that he was going to let Pharaoh take Sarai as a wife. No chance. So while Sarai was apparently being groomed for Pharaoh's harem, which took some time, we find that according to Genesis 12:17 to 19, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. And Pharaoh then calls for Abram, and he says, What is it that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now, here's your wife. Take her and go. Now note that Pharaoh's statement here makes it pretty clear that if Abram had simply been honest with him, Pharaoh wouldn't have messed with him or his wife. And everything would have been just fine. But look at this, guys. If Abram had had it in his power to undo the promises of God, that's exactly what he would have done in this situation. But fortunately, it was not in his power. From a human perspective, it seemed that Abraham did everything he could to put the covenant promises at risk to ensure that there would be no covenant son through Sarah. His actions were incredibly manipulative, untrusting toward God, dishonorable to Pharaoh, and in complete disregard for the covenant. But who got blessed and who got cursed in this situation? Well, Pharaoh got plagues from God, and Abram got wealthy. Abram walked away from Egypt with far more than when he had left Canaan to flee from the famine in the first place. So did Abram get what he deserved from God? Hardly. Now keep all of this in mind as we continue to work through this saga. Second episode, Abraham and Abimelech. Okay, his name's been changed now, so I can stick with Abraham. Genesis 20. In Genesis 20, Abraham had a relapse of the Sarah is my sister syndrome. Only this time, it's about 25 years later. His wife is almost 90 years old and he's still worried that someone's going to latch on to her and kill him to get her as a wife. So she must have really been a looker. (laughs) Abraham and Sarah had in chapters 17 and 18 been told explicitly that the covenant son was going to come through her. That she would bear that son within the very next year after, after God declared that that was going to be the case. But once again, Abraham acted as if the promise of God didn't exist. And again, if it had been in his own power, he would have undone the covenant promises. In effect, by handing the mother of the covenant son over to a pagan king as a wife. Why? To protect himself. He acted as if God, the God of the covenant, the God who made these promises to him, was incapable of keeping him alive long enough to fulfill those promises. And once again, a pagan king, in this case Abimelech, king of a Philistine city-state called Gerar, acted honorably while Abraham acted treacherously. 
In Genesis 20, verses 3 through 6, we see that God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night while he had Sarah in his possession and told him he was a dead man because of the woman he had taken since she was married. And Abimelech pleaded with God not to destroy him and his people. And he declared his own integrity in the matter. And you know what? In verse 6, God agreed with Abimelech that he had acted with integrity. God says, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. God is the one protecting the covenant, certainly not Abraham. All right. In verse 7 of chapter 20, we find God making a fairly surprising statement to Abimelech in light of the circumstances. He says, Now therefore, restore the man's wife, Abraham's wife, for he is a prophet. And he, Abraham, you know, the guy who lied to you and put your whole kingdom at risk of being utterly destroyed by me because of his self-serving lie, that guy, he'll pray for you and you'll live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So then Abimelech confronted Abraham about his deception. And instead of confessing that he had done wrong, Abraham justified his lie. Abimelech says, what have you encountered? What have you seen that you would do such a thing? And Abraham says, because I thought surely there's no fear of God in this place. You know, I'm the God-fearer here. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's actually, she actually is my sister. The daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So here's where we find out that the notion that a half-truth is better than no truth at all is an ancient notion. He sounds like a teenager. (laughs) And he's a hundred years old. At the end of this incident with Abimelech, we find that during the time after Abimelech had taken Sarah as a wife, God cursed the people of Gerar by closing the wombs of all of the women. None of them could conceive. And we also find that once again, Abraham ended up with greater wealth than when he had come to Gerar in the first place. In verses 14 to 16, it tells us that Abraham gave, or that Abimelech gave to Abraham sheep and oxen and male and female servants and restored his wife Sarah to him after handing Sarah a thousand pieces of silver as vindication for the fact that he hadn't touched her. So I'll ask the same questions again. Who acted honorably in this episode and who acted dishonorably? Well, Abraham lied and then with, when he was confronted by Abimelech, tried to justify his lie. But God told Abimelech that he was the one who acted with integrity. Okay, well, who ended up blessed? Let's see. Abimelech had his life and the lives of all his people threatened by Almighty God. And during that same time that Sarah was under his roof, none of the women in his kingdom could conceive a child. And then he, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, got the delightful task of going to the guy who had deceived him and brought the curse of God upon him to ask that guy to beseech his God not to destroy him and his kingdom. So I'd say Abimelech was the one who got the short end of the stick here. 
Abraham, on the other hand, the liar who took matters into his own hands and put the covenant at risk, got to keep his wife and he walked away a wealthier man. But more to the point, every single promise that God had made to him was still valid. Who in this episode was more favored by God? The godless pagan who acted with integrity or the covenant son who did not? Why in the world would God cause things to shake out like that? What is the message here? Why would he cause the guy who acted sinfully to be blessed while the guy who acted with integrity was for a time cursed? Could it be that God was showing his covenant people very early in their history that even when they are faithless, he is faithful? Could it be that God was powerfully demonstrating that the, that the fact is it is not possible for us who are the objects of his grace and the recipients of his promises to undo those promises? Could it be that the way God grows the faith of us who tend toward faithlessness is by never ceasing to be faithful himself? I believe that's precisely what this covenant is about. It's about God calling out a people for his own possession and then creating in that people genuine faith and obedience by showing them his character and his faithfulness over and over and over. By pouring out his grace on them when they do not deserve it at all. Now please understand I would never say this means that God turns a blind eye to the sin of his people. And that's not what this, these passages are saying. Far from it. May it never be. It can be clearly demonstrated from Scripture, I believe, that God's harshest punishments this side of heaven are reserved for those who belong to him, not for those who don't. But even his discipline results in blessing for his people, not curse. That's what Hebrews 12 says, right? It says all discipline is sorrowful for the moment, but in the end, what does it yield? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's painful. It's sorrowful. But he says it's for your good that you may share my holiness. Is that a blessing or a curse? I'd say that's a blessing. Painful one sometimes. By the way, In chapter 26, after Isaac has grown up and married and Abraham has died, we find that the acorn didn't fall far far from the tree. Isaac repeated the my wife is my, actually, my wife is my sister, not my wife thing. And a very similar outcome occurred. He uh, came out of it better than he started. And uh, there wasn't any good reason for it except God keeping his promises. All right. Another vignette here from the, from the scriptures. Abraham, Sarah, and the son of laughter. This thing is amazing to me. In Genesis 17, God restated all three of the covenant promises to Abram. Land, seed, and blessing. And he changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And that name, Abraham, it becomes a memorial for all the rest of the generations of God's people to God's promise of the covenant seed. A multitude, father of a multitude. And God told Abraham that the promised seed, the covenant son, would come through his wife, Sarah, in that same passage. 
Again, by that point, Abraham was almost 100 years old. Sarah was almost 90 years old. So when God told Abraham that the covenant son would come through Sarah, what did Abraham do? He fell on his face and laughed. Verse 17. Apparently, thinking that God had missed some important facts, Abraham proceeded to remind God how old he was and how old his wife was. And again, he pleaded with him to let Ishmael live so that, you know, bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I already got a son. Choose him. But God wasn't looking to Abraham for clarification or direction. (laughs) God told Abraham that, that he would indeed bless Ishmael, but that Ishmael would not be the one through whom he would fulfill his covenant promises. And he told Abraham that he would establish his covenant with the son who would come through Sarah. And then God gave a name to that son. And the name he gave that son is Isaac. Anybody know what the name Isaac means? means he laughs. So the name of the covenant son became a memorial to Abraham's laughter of unbelief. But not only a memorial to that. Soon after that encounter, the angel of Yahweh appeared at Abraham's camp in chapter 18 with two other angels. All three of them took the appearance of men. And at that point, the Lord told Abraham that he would return to him the same time the following year and that Sarah, his wife, would have the son he's been talking about by that time. And in 1811, Genesis 18:11, the text tells us that Sarah was past childbearing. That means she was postmenopausal. It was medically impossible for her to bear a child. So Sarah, who overheard from a distance what the angel of Yahweh was telling her husband, laughed to herself in her tent. And the angel of Yahweh, of course, heard that which was inaudible. He knew exactly what was in her heart. And in chapter 18, verse 13, he says, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. (laughs) And of course, Sarah then denied having laughed because she was very afraid. But the angel of Yahweh simply said, Uh, No, but you did laugh. In the next chapter, the two angels that appeared with the angel of Jehovah, of Yahweh, at Abraham's camp along with the Lord, those two angels went down to Sodom and Gomorrah to yank Lot and his daughters out of the midst of that messed up city before God rained down fire and brimstone and reduced the city to ashes. Then in chapter 20, as we've already seen, Abraham and Sarah journeyed to Gerar where Abraham lied to King Abimelech about his identity, and we saw what happened there. In the next chapter, chapter 21, we see the finishing out of the story and the theme of laughter. We find the actual birth of Isaac. And look at chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Four times in two verses, God declares that he has done what he said he would do. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. There's four ways that God says, guess what? I kept my promise. All right. 
we find here that Abraham and, and Sarah finally have the, the baby, the child that's been promised all this time. And by the way, the first promise was 25 years before this. And then Sarah, in verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 21, says this, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Guys, what changed Sarah's laughter of derision and unbelief to laughter of rejoicing? Was it something Sarah did? No, it was something God did. It was his faithfulness in carrying out his promises without wavering. In the very next chapter, chapter 22, we find a profound transformation has occurred in Abraham, and this was addressed this morning at the worship. God commands Abraham to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to God. Abraham obeys God without a single protest. And after binding up his son Isaac, he raises his knife to slay his own son. But God stops him in verse 12. He says, Do not stretch your hand out against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. Great picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. A couple of thousand years later, the writer of Hebrews gives us an insider's look into the mind of Abraham when he was about to offer up his own son. It says, and it refers back to the covenant promise, by, Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when he was tempted, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Amazing that he should use that wording since Abraham had another son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And then look at this, verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which also he received him back as a type. As a foreshadowing of Christ. Abraham, whose trust in the promises of God had been woefully inconsistent, who had repeatedly taken matters into his own hands in a way that from a human perspective put the very covenant at risk, had come to the point where he believed that if he obeyed God's command to take the life of his own son, God would raise that son from the dead. What moved Abraham from fearful manipulations and faithlessness to that kind of trust in the promise of God and the character of God. Trust that brought him to a point of unquestioning obedience in what may be the hardest command God has ever given to any man in history. 
The answer is, I believe, knowing God's promises and watching Him keep them without wavering. Beloved, God's covenant faithfulness changes us. What moves you and me from fear and distrust to greater faith in God? Faith that translates into submissive obedience to that which he commands. Knowing his promises, his steadfast covenant faithfulness to keep those promises, even when we struggle to trust him fully. And by seeing those things, knowing his character. In Romans 2, when Paul is rebuking those who readily pass judgment on others, he says in verses 3 and 4, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and then do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now we'll see next week that all who believe in Jesus Christ are even now heirs to the covenant promises that God made with Abraham. And as heirs to that covenant, which God swore by himself to fulfill, we are recipients of the kindness and forbearance of our God unto eternal life. We who have believed in Jesus Christ. How do we experience what Abraham experienced? I'm not waiting for God to do the same things for me that he did for Abraham. And if he did, I might miss it. I might misconstrue it like Abraham did for a while. But here's what I know. God has given us the testimony of his steadfast covenant faithfulness through many, many generations right here. And he has called us to know this testimony so that we might be changed by it. God will do things in our lives and in the life of, the, of his body, the church, that testify to his faithfulness, to his promises. But we might misinterpret those things if we do not see them through the filter of that which he has already revealed and made known of himself. These things that we just looked at today, they're for our benefit. And so we must be in his word in order to be transformed by his character. You with me? If you're not, if you're here this morning and you are hearing all this stuff and uh, it doesn't make much sense to you when we talk about having trusted in Jesus as Savior, uh, I can assure you that you are not yet an heir to the promises that God made to Abraham. And the way you will become so and to realize the amazing blessings of that position uh, is by believing in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid the penalty that you could never pay. All right, next week we are going to go forward historically and look at how this very covenant plays out in the prophets and in the New Testament.
So stay with us. There's a lot more to come. Loving Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank, Thank you for the power of your hand at work in the lives of your people. Thank you for calling Abram Abram out from Ur of the Chaldeans, from a a place where people had forgotten about you. And then making promises to him that proceeded only from who you are, not from who he was. And then thank you, Father, for your steadfast faithfulness to keep those promises in such a way that Abraham's unbelief was turned to submissive faith and obedience. Do that same work in us, Lord. Do that same work in us. We ask it in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.